Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Well, welcome back, everyone. We're ready to start our question period. Just a few uh, quick announcements before we do that. Um, I would like to note next week is the SACPA AGM. Um, members are encouraged to attend that. Um, also, uh, there is a sympathy card for Lucy Toth um, that you're welcome to sign if you choose to after the session. Um, This session and other sessions are available on the SACPAW website as well as an opportunity to leave your comments and keep the conversation going. And there's also a suggestion box uh, out in the lobby for your ideas um, and your uh, complaints, I guess. Um, <clears throat> just In just a few moments, I'll invite Mark back up to the stage. There's a microphone to my right, to the uh, the left of the room. Um, please state your name, keep your comments brief, and I invite you to return to your seat once your question has been asked. We'll try and get as many people through as possible. Um, so once again, we have Mark Gettle on the subject of uh, uh, government muzzling of scientists. Thank you. Thank you. <coughs> Uh, my name is Van Christou. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for taking time to be with us today. I, I thought I knew quite a bit about this subject and sure learned a lot today. Um, your approach to the whole scientific matter is, has, has been really, really valuable. Thank you. Um, my question is around this matter of uh, Thatcherism that you talked about, this uh, belief that the marketplace makes all the right decisions. Um, it, in, in my opinion, uh, if uh, we continue with that kind of thinking, uh, do you not think that in a very few years we're going to be paying far more for everything that is based on science coming out of other places than North America or Europe? Yeah, I think so. As, as a scientist that's got an appointment in China, it just absolutely overwhelms me when I go to China and visit these universities and see how much money the Chinese government is pumping into science. And what I do when I lecture there, I try and teach the scientists there how to publish in public and uh, uh, peer-reviewed journals. Right now, there's a tremendous push by the Chinese to have their science internationally recognized. So it's at that level where they're trying to get their publications into peer-reviewed journals, but they're having a lot of trouble, of course, because of language issues. They've been cut off from the rest of the world for such a long time. They don't, they're not in that way of thinking that we are here, that you have to get everything ready for a peer-reviewed journal. So <clears throat> certainly the amount of science that's going to be coming out of China in the next decades or so are going to be overwhelming. And maybe we're going to have that Sputnik moment where all of a sudden uh, Western governments are going to realize how far behind we're being, we're leaving so... Once that science in China gets developed, right now they're using our technologies to produce cheap products for us. But in the future, it'll be their technologies, and we're going to have to pay for this for sure. Yeah. 
Douglas Mitchell. Uh, I thank you, Mark, for enlightening me. I was a scientist in Ottawa for 20 years, back in from 56 to 76 before I came here as a middle manager, research manager. And it just amazes me to see how the world has turned completely. We lived, I think, in a much better age. And I'm glad I'm old and won't be here that much longer. And certainly, I do not envy any of you as scientists in the current environment. My question would be, what is the, are the chances of turning the clock back? It seems to me that we've gone over the cliff in terms of the market ideology and uh, everything's got to make money and so forth. So I'd just like your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think as a public we have to realize that we pay taxes for something and if we pay taxes, we can demand what we want to have done with those taxes. And I think the present government is, you know, I, I mean, Canadians complain about taxes and they complain about taxes and they compare their taxes to the Americans but they don't realize what our taxes get back to us. If you go to the U.S., you'll have to pay twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 a year in health insurance. You'll have to pay a lot more in other taxes, like municipal taxes. My brother-in-law lives in New York or has a house in New York that's worth about a million dollars. He's paying $20,000 a year in municipal taxes. So we don't realize that maybe we aren't overtaxed, but that's the mantra of the Canadian public is that we're overtaxed and the government is turning around and the present government has reduced the GST from 7 to 5%. It's blaming the unbalanced budget due to the recession, but it never balanced the budget when the GST was reduced. And it was very well known. People predicted if you reduce the GST, you'll have to reduce the public service. And the public service is, the research is, is a huge part of that public service. So, uh, what will turn us around? Well, I guess it'll have to be government. It'll have to be public. It'll have to be public that is willing to pay for what we want. My name is Knut Peterson. Um, Mark, with the, the corporate sector becoming more and more powerful and basically uh, not much happening within government unless the corporate sector says oh, it's okay, uh, can you see the day where there will be no publicly funded scientists and uh, so they won't have to worry about muscling people? Yeah. Well, we're on our way there, that's for sure. Um, right now, as a government scientist, either you get funding that's been approved by the government or you have to go and beg to um, industry. And in agriculture, though, we still get a lot of funding from grower associations or Ducks Unlimited, things like that. So there still is uh, funding for sort of public good things. But as that, public, uh, as that money dries up, certainly that's the way we're going. And that statement, I think, that I, uh, I uh, had there where um, was the government has control over what money they're having and that it has to be economically viable is, is, is quite scary. And the statement that Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada now will concentrate on helping the farmer. And what does that mean? I mean, the research branch was always there to help the farmer. So does that mean just subsidies for farming catastrophes or tariffs or whatever? So that is scary. It looks like, yeah, certainly, as a scientist, you know, if you've worked at the government for the last 10 or 20 years, you're thinking that everything is being done is to make, to give an excuse to kill that research institute that you're working for. 
Certainly that's the feeling I had. <clears throat> yeah. Hello, Gerald Wobick. Uh, I appreciate your speech. Uh, I'm just wondering, uh, are a lot of scientists immigrating, emigrating, or thinking of emigrating? And if they do, where would they go where they would have their scientific freedom that they believe they should have? Thank you. Yeah. One thing I could say is that less and less Canadians that are earning graduate degrees, if you go to our universities, even at our research station, you'll see that probably 50% of our graduate students are Chinese or from outside the country. And a lot of them were trying to stay. As far as Canadians going elsewhere, well, universities around the world, I think probably the most freedom right now is in the Scandinavian countries, Sweden, Denmark, all those areas there. France also, I think they're very open-minded research um, view. Actually, when I was doing my uh, work-study leave in France, I remember my uh, colleague complaining that he was trying to do some research that was directly applicable to farmers, and his supervisor said, you know, we're not here to do research directly to help the farmers. We're here to do more basic stuff. So it's a complete different uh, attitude than here. But I don't really know. I can't really tell you uh, how many Canadian scientists would be emigrating, but I do know that I th I, I'm feeling that there's less and less interest by Canadians to go into graduate school and go into science because the future looks quite dismal. Yeah. Uh, Terry Shillington. Mark, thank you very much for your presentation. Really appreciated it. Um, I'd like to ask a question that grew out of the discussion around our table, and that was uh, about how we're to understand how we got here. Um, are we to understand this as a particular philosophy of the Harper government and the brand of conservatism that we've Canada's had in the last 10 years, or is this a global trend that's also going on in Germany and Denmark and Japan and uh, that sort of thing? Um. Well, it started with Thatcherism, and it's certainly the present government is pushing it tremendously. Um, in certain countries, like I think in France, also like I was just saying, it's my understanding that no, they do not go to industry to try and, and uh, subsidize their work, same as Germany. So I don't think it's a global thing. Uh, it started not just by the Harper government. It's with the liberals. It's, it's Basically, the whole thing is that if you're going to try and reduce taxes and you want to keep the same type of institutes going, whatever, you got to go f for handouts somewhere else. And as I mentioned, prior to the 1980s, it was a, a policy that government research was for the public and for the public good, so it, it was not allowed for a researcher to get any money from anyone because that would show that there's a special interest that you are using public funds to fund someone's specific problem. And that's completely turned around now, yeah. So uh, as funds get lessened, then, of course, there's more pressure to go and get handouts somewhere else. And, of course, if whoever gives you the money, they expect the return, and they want to keep that return, so... Hi, Mark. Uh, my name is Graham Greenlee. Um, is the same trend evident at universities, uh, where university profs have to, have to go out and scrounge for uh, research funding from wherever they can get it? That's my first question. And the second question, you indicated that most of the university research, 90% of the university research, is done by graduate students but they are under the direction of profs, are they not? So presumably profs are uh, getting credit for it, 
and uh, writing the scientific papers. Yeah. Okay, to answer your second question, yes. The hands-on experience and the hands-on, the pe person who's actually doing the research is usually the grad student. But that doesn't mean the grad students have a free reign. Yes, they're under the uh, tutorship of the, uh, of the professor, and that's the way it should be. I mean, the graduate students are learning how to do research under the tutorship. Uh, many of the profs, they just don't have time. I mean, the, the bigger the program, they'll have a dozen graduate students. They don't have the time to sit down or go to the lab and do the research itself. That doesn't mean that they're not guiding that research. As far as the universities, unfortunately, this whole frenzy started at universities also. For instance, I believe that most of the platform technologies that Monsanto uses for genetically modified organisms were bought from the University of California. And that's where the universities started patenting offices and commercialization offices. Because again, universities are hungry for money. They depend mostly on government handouts. That money starts getting lower, or if they see something where they can get money. So now university researchers are, yes, definitely going after corporate grants, et cetera, et cetera. <coughs> yeah. Thank you so much for your talk. I'm Bev Mundell-Atherstone. I think it's quite brave to stand up here and tell us the kinds of things you have. A lot of us know, but I think it's very brave. So thank you for your courage. Um, Henning and I had the opportunity to be judges in the science fair, the national science fair that was here in Lethbridge just a few weeks ago. And on the front page of the Herald, sorry Dave, <laughs> was... Uh, a big article on winners of, you know, the million dollars worth of prizes for these students who had fabulous projects. And on the other side of the same front page was federal cuts to research scientists. And I thought, what a cynical, what an absolutely cynical world these young scientists are coming up in. So in your, in your talk, you've talked about the strangulation of science by virtue of money. And I'm wondering if you have thought at all about how we could divorce government and, and government's control over that funding from the research. In other words, so that the funds would be at arm's length from government um, for the research station, the university, and other publicly funded research institutes. Yeah, well, that's the way it basically used to be. NSERC, the Natural Sciences and Engineering Research Council, the Medical Research Council, SHRC, the Social Sciences Research Council. A pot of money was given to them, and they had a committee that then looked at proposals and funded. And those proposals were based on scientific merit. And back in the 80s, 90s, the creeping thing came in when you put in a proposal, what is the public benefit or what is the monetary return? And now, apparently, like uh, just today I was reading, I got an article where there's this huge $5.5 billion fund for, for innovation or something. Who are the people reviewing these? Who's on board? Well, there's people from the oil industry. There's people from the uh, different corporations. So they now have control or have a say into where that money goes. So it's no longer researchers... Before, for instance, NSERC, Natural Science and Sciences and Engineering Research Council, the people on the board were eminent scientists. Okay, so they divvied up the funds. Because obviously we don't have funds to fund everything. There still has to be some kind of a, a control. 
So I think the way these things are changing, when it changes, if um, if the control over the money is going back to the scientists, so the scientists can do the science that they think needs to be done, where they have the passion, and not be told that they have to do science in this area or that area because the government itself thinks that's a priority. That's one thing, and make sure that that funding remains, because that funding for NSERC and SHRC and everything has been going down and down and down and down. Yep. Thanks, Mark. My name is Deb Jarvie. You made uh, a reference a couple of times in your presentation to interdisciplinary research, and um, it seemed that you saw that as a negative. I might be wrong. Uh, I just wondered if you could elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with interdisciplinary research, and it's encouraged. But I think what's happened now is that if you're going to put a proposal in, you just can't put a proposal in that I'd like to do this. You have to show how you're going to work as a team with this scientist and this scientist and even you know social scientists, etc. So it's an expectation that it has to be an interdisciplinary project in order to be valuable or to be funded. And that is where I'm saying it's wrong because they're scientists that can do something on their own. They don't need an interdisciplinary approach to do that piece of science. But right now it's an expectation. It's got to be big. It's got to be involved. You know, in the past at the Research Center, we did research that was very much regionally applicable. Our director would and we, we'd be able to convince our director what we needed to do to address the problems of the region. Now everything has to be a national and so that means you need to work with scientists in Ottawa and scientists all over the place. And that doesn't always have to – you don't need that necessarily. And then you have this huge inter interdisciplinary project with scientists from coast to coast, and you're not allowed to travel. You know. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thank you, Mark. Great job. Uh, my name is Joseph Matuk. I, uh, I'm going to follow up on a question that uh, Graham asked here a few minutes ago. Uh, regarding uh, you know institutions, uh, I, I wondered uh, what opinion you have about the provincial aspect of research and funding. Because, uh, as I recall, I did some way back in the early '60s, and uh, the word economics came in, and research became a very bad word. And that happened started to happen about '70s and '80s, and mm -hmm. I saw that just totally devastate the whole uh, whatever we had at the provincial level as well. Yeah, Alberta, I'll just speak about Alberta because Alberta is an interesting uh, situation. Alberta had the Heritage Trust Fund that had Farming for the Future, lots of money to go into research. A lot of that money was funneled actually into federal researchers. We could get grants from the federal, I mean from the provincial government to augment the money that we could get provincially, uh, federally. But then again, the Alberta Research Council, all those people were also jumped onto the bandwagon. The uh, Alberta Research Council, the, their, their institute in Vagraville, etc., the scientists, again, were expected to start producing research that will return on investment, and the view was that that institute will fund itself once they've got all these patents and all this money starts flowing in. So I think certainly at the Alberta level, the, the same thing is happening. And the funny thing, too, is also in the past, sort of an unwritten rule, I guess it was, the federal government does much more... Uh, basic type research goes up to sort of the applied field. The provinces were more or less uh, responsible for the extension part. You'd have entomologists that go and show the farmers how to do things, etc. So that was sort of the model in agriculture. 
But then again, when all of a sudden there was this thing that, well, there's money to be made, then Alberta started pouring a lot of money into their own research establishments with the expectation that there's going to be return on funding. In actual fact, they even reduced the extension work. So for farmers, there's less one-on-one ability to get technology transferred, but there's a lot more money that's being put into research. My name is Blaine Thacker, and the issue that worries me more than anything else is this right to uh, register a patent on a genetic string. Would you comment on that and the significance of that and where it might be going down the road? Yeah. In Canada, it was not possible to patent a living organism, but in the U.S. it was, and that's caused problems. I know there was a situation where I think it was scientists at McGill were using a rat that was patented and uh, by Cornell that had a certain gene, and they infringed on the patent, et cetera, et cetera. So living organisms were patentable in the U.S., but not in Canada. But then what happened with the gene? And all of a sudden, the genes are being patented. So if I find a gene that maybe causes cancer, whatever, I can patent it. Or So definitely, there's a dilemma here. The patent rules, or the rules have not quite, or the science has changed so quickly that the patent rules have not quite caught up with it. And so, yeah, you're very right that this is a, a great concern that someone can have the right to something that is existing in living organisms and have the complete right to what it's used and how it's used, and, and you have to pay for it to use it. Are you allowed a second question there, moderator? <laughs> Mark, I wonder if you could expand upon... Uh, you spoke about Monsanto. Are you uh, comfortable with... Uh, the situation. Uh, my question basically is if GMO foods are so good for you, why wouldn't they want to label it? And on the other side of the coin, why are they opposed to uh, labeling food that's non GMO? Why are they opposed to, for anybody to, to label food non GMO if it's so good? Hey, I, I was actually even participating in some of these discussions that occurred from coast to coast when the uh, CFIA, the regulatory agencies, were wondering, how are we going to do this? And there were, like, we had these sort of town hall meetings, and I was part of them. And uh, the discussion went round and round, and we sort of came up to the conclusion that if you start labeling a GMO, where do you stop? You have canola, that's GMO. Well, you extract canola oil, and then the canola oil, the French fry, is then fried in that canola oil. And that, you know what I mean? And then I think the consensus was that we shouldn't regulate the product or the process. And that's the whole problem is that right now, GMOs, everything is labeled as the process, not the product. And that's where the big problem is, I think. There are excellent GMO products that can come out, that have come out, that have never been commercialized because of the public backlash against GMO. So scientifically, GMO is just, it's a scientific method of giving traits to something that it doesn't have before, either from another organism or from even that organism itself. And I think a lot of people who have diabetes don't realize that the insulin they're injecting into themselves is a GMO. It's now being produced by a bacterium, but it is the gene that came from a human. 
So this whole backlash against GMOs, one is a philosophical one that we're playing God, that we're taking genes that don't belong in an organism. But the other one, I think, and that's another one, especially at the pharma level, is that this is all a monopoly by Monsanto. It started as that Monsanto now started basically farmers were not able to grow their own seed anymore. There was a patent. You know, they were growing something that they could had to use Monsanto's products to control the weeds with, etc. So there's multifaceted things here. But as far as the food itself is safe or not, right now if there's a public backlash to something, you're not going to label it, right? But if it was a GMO that prevented cancer, if you ate a carrot every day that prevented cancer, you'd be labeling it, right? <laughs> so the whole thing is that right now the GMO products that are there benefit more Monsanto and maybe the farmer, but not the public. As soon as we get GMOs that will benefit the public, I think the public will jump on it. And especially in the future, food starts getting very expensive and difficult to get. Nobody will, uh, will protest eating a GMO food if they're going to get hungry. But right now the problem is that you see the farmers in a, in, a, in a tough situation. Either you grow a GMO and compete with the other GMOs that are there, and it's cheaper maybe to grow a GMO because you don't have to use – you can control weeds so easily or control pests much easier, and that's the problem. Mark, uh, Trevor Page, um, as you had Margaret Thatcher at the top of your list <laughs> as being responsible for the state of affairs, and she was a chemist, I'm not sure she was uh, worked as a government uh, scientist, I'm a little hesitant to ask you for a prescription on how to get out of the dilemma. But looking at the picture that you have up there on the screen of not just disgruntled scientists, but uh, a disgruntled population with scientists at, at the core, I would presume, and since you have a passion for this, I wonder whether there are other movements in other parts of the Western world I think probably I do mean the Western world, um, that are rebelling against the current state of affairs and whether this movement is gaining strength and is perhaps focused. Hmm. Good question. <laughs> I, I'm not aware. I do know that the, our scientists in Britain have been hit very hard in the last government with, again, their... Uh, zeal to try and balance the budget, but I don't know of any big demonstrations, etc. We know what happened in Quebec when the uh, tuition fees were going to raise by, uh, what, 2% or 3%? <laughs> There's a huge outcry. Uh, right now in Canada, I think there was, I forget now what it's called now, there's a um, organization that's being formed that's called, let's see, I just have it here, uh, Evidence for Democracy, and it's a science-based group at uh, University of Ottawa that's put this uh, not-for-profit organization, Evidence for Democracy, trying to push and, and make the public realize that we need both sides of the evidence before, uh, so that proper decisions can be made. You know, we need the science that supports use of oil and then the science that shows what oil is doing, etc. So the problem right now is, you know, what we say the government, I feel, is doing is that, you know, if you don't want the answer to the question, you don't ask the question. So if you don't want to answer what oil could do badly, you don't find that, so that research. So 
But uh, worldwide, not sure. Certainly in Canada, things have happened very quickly in the last few years. Uh, my name is Ian McCulloch. Uh, how is our present situation different from the uh, early 70s when McEachern brought out his white paper on research and eliminated all the research in this country? Like, is this a, a this is is our present situation indicative of a conservative type government where McEachern was a liberal, or is this a Canadian political uh, thing that keeps happening time after time? I'm too young to answer that question. <laughs> I believe you were in university the same time I was. Yeah. Um, well, the, the, the problem is that every hit, every hit, every hit, we never bounce back to where we were. There's no doubt that the 60s were the heydays. There was lots, much more, there was much more scientific funding. There was expansion of universities, expansion of everything. Uh, the, the big hit I know in agriculture, whatever is 95, you know, the liberal balancing the budget. And there was a great cutting of, of research. And we were just recovering for, from it basically in the 2000s. And then now the next round is coming back. But I think the problem is that every time there's a round, we never bounce back to where we were before. So, you know, there's never too much research. There's so much knowledge out there that is to be gained. So, But there probably is a threshold where if we cut below a certain threshold, we're going to be in a situation where we have no experts to address certain things that have to be addressed, that are very important to address. And that's where I bring my analogy of the fire station. You know, we have to make sure that we have a country where we're experts in certain areas that are very important, maybe, you know, to, to, to address into the future. Climate, environment, uh, sustainability, agriculture, uh, you know, the forestry, all those things. Well, we've uh, reached our time for today, and maybe I'll just uh, finish it off by asking Mark if there's any last words you'd like to impart on us here. Okay. Okay, I, I think I'll just read this. This is a contract, part of a contract where scientists, where there was going to be a project between the Amer U.S. scientists and Canadian scientists, and the, the U.S. scientists walked away because this is what they had to sign upon the contract where there's going to be joint research between Canada and the U.S. It says, any technology, data, or other information of any kind related to arising from the project collectively the information, shall be deemed confidential and neither party may release any such information to others in any way whatsoever without the prior authorization of the other party. In other words, do the research, but you can't talk about it unless we let you know. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Big round of applause for Mark Gettle.